Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today I will be leading you through a case study on ancient Israel. So we've been looking at the institutions of government, money, and education. And for this case study, we're going to focus on the government aspect. And this episode specifically will be more about governance over government. And that's kind of the focus of our analysis here. We will first discuss the governance of the Israelites, and then we're going to look at some specific topics like slavery and the treatment of women, uh, punishment, war, personal responsibility, things of this nature. And we should get a very good view of how they govern themselves and how they thought about things like rights and responsibilities and social inequality and things of this nature. So we're going to go ahead and dig in and see what the governance system in ancient Israel looked like before they actually had kings and a monarchy and more of what we think of today as a structured government. So most of the information I will be going over will be coming from the Hebrew Bible. This is not a religious podcast, and this is not a sermon. This is more on the historical side, and that's what we're going to focus on. The Bible has been proven to be historically accurate and the most accurate source we have on the Israelites in general, the Hebrews, and the people of that area. And so we're going to look at it from that perspective. That's where we're going to get our information from, and that's perspective we are going to look at it from. We are going to focus on the history and those aspects and stay away from the religious aspect. Now, religion does come into play, obviously, in some areas, but overall, that's not what we're going to be focusing on. So as far as looking at ancient written codes and ancient written laws, we do have a few examples out there. The Mosaic Law is not the only one that we have records of. We also have the Code of Hammurabi and the Code of Ernamu and other codes and law systems that were around in that area of Mesopotamia in this rough time period we're looking at. And this is 1000, 2000 BC. So this is a long time ago. And we don't have a lot of records of how nations and governments and kings and peoples really interacted and what their codes were. But these are the earliest law codes that we have. And we see ideas and concepts coming up the Code of Hammurabi is credited with being one of the first law systems that gave a presumption of innocence, to a degree at least. And all of these law codes did give some progressive concepts, like more rights to women and things of this nature. And those are great. That, that is progress. However, when we look at the laws of ancient Israel we see much, much more than that. It was very different than the laws of the time, and it's actually very in line with our current beliefs and what we believe today as being the rights of all individuals. So 
let's start off by looking at the overall broad system. How is this government set up? Well, to begin with, it's not a government. So as the Israelites came out of Egypt and went towards their promised land that they were going to settle in, they left without a king, without a government, without any structure of that sort. So they had Moses as their leader, and he played that role as a leader, and he guided them. He was the one they went to when they had disputes and things of that nature, but that was about it. That was all the structure they had. And so their society had to develop ways of dealing with things. This was thousands of people. It is recorded that it was a mixed multitude. So there were people of many different nations, many different races. There were many different types of people and cultures that were involved. They came from Egypt, so heavily influenced by Egyptian culture. They had their Hebrew culture that was their own as well. Plus, I'm sure there were many other peoples and people from different nationalities that were included with them, and they had their own cultures and ways of dealing with things. And so it was just a lot to deal with. It was a huge compilation. People talk about America as being the melting pot, and this mixed multitude coming out of Egypt that we think of as the ancient Israelites this was the real melting pot. There were so many different types of people. It was not just the Hebrews. And so what they ended up developing and what kind of evolved in their society was an aspect of decentralization of governance. So we have one example and one story of Moses and him dealing with all these issues and the people coming to them and they had disputes, they had questions. He was spending all of his time trying to figure this stuff out. And his father-in-law came to him and his father-in-law was a foreigner. He was not a Hebrew and he was not a believer in the God of Israel, but he did have some wise advice. He told Moses that what you need to do is spread out some of this responsibility. You need to delegate. You can't handle all this on your own. It is too much for you. It is too heavy of a burden to carry. You need to spread this out. So you should pick out trusted people among the people as a whole and find people that are trustworthy. Find people that are respected, that are elders, that have a very good reputation. It, he specifically says to find people that hate to take on dishonest gain. So people that are not easily corrupted, not only are they not easily corrupted, they actually disdain corruption and they will stay far away from that. And this is the advice that Moses is given. He actually takes this advice, even though his father-in-law is a foreigner, he is not a believer in his same religion, he sees the wisdom in the advice that he has given and he delegates this responsibility. And he does pick people that are respected in the community. So this is, like I said, a group, a very large group of people. So they were already segregated into different groups. There are different tribes, different families. And so what they did is they took these kind of small microcosm communities, and each one had an elder and this was a person that was well-respected by the people in that little small community, and it was someone that was trusted. 
And what they did is people that had a dispute or had an argument or had a question that they couldn't resolve themselves, they would go to this elder, whoever their local community elder was, and they would give their dispute to them, and the elder would render a verdict. Now, if there was a dispute over the verdict and the parties did not agree and they had further complaints, then they would take these bigger issues to Moses and he would be the kind of the Supreme Court, if, if you want to take that example. And he would be the final decision maker on these big issues that they couldn't really agree on amongst the more local elders. So you already see this kind of decentralization of dispute re- resolution and kind of a judiciary system that came up there. There is also the religious aspect. These were very religious people. They believed that their God had performed many miracles and miraculously got them out of Egypt and that he was there with him and talked to Moses. And so they were obviously very religious. And religious aspects within the Israelite community were handled by the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was the tribe that had all the priests. They were the ones that dictated religious law and religious verdicts and basically handled all of the religious aspects within the Israelite community. So there were 12 tribes in total, depending on how you count them up, and they all did have different responsibilities. Traditionally, the tribe of Judah was the tribe that most of the leaders came out of. The tribe of Levi was the tribe that handled the religious and priestly duties, and each tribe kind of had their own responsibilities and their own strengths and weaknesses and took on their own roles. So the aspect of religion was the Levites. You had justice that was decentralized to more local leaders and elders. You had overall guidance that was handled mostly by Moses and then by Joshua. And you did have leaders. They weren't kings, but they were at least leaders. And so you also see some techniques such as casting lots. So this is a term that describes basically a random selection when they can't decide for themselves on a matter. So if they were going to distribute five pieces of land amongst five individuals and they had no way to do this fairly, they would just divide up the land into five sections and they would cast lots. And depending on basically how the dice rolled, if you want to use that metaphor, they would divvy out the land according to the results. And it was a fairly random ordeal. Now, they believed that God was in control of the results, and therefore that's why um, it was something worth following and that they should believe in. But if you do not follow that mindset, then it is just a random casting, and it's randomly distributed, which most would argue is a fairly fair way of handling business. Um, Another aspect was that of militias. So there was no standing army. There was no general. Each tribe kind of had their own militias. They had their own fighting men, and they had 
their own recruits that in a time when they needed soldiers and they needed protection or they were going out to war, they would basically gather up the militias, um, you could say, of the different tribes. And so that's really how it was structured as a whole. It was very broken up. It was very decentralized. You did not have one central authority that made all the decisions and was the final call. You had many different aspects, many different groups, and many different people involved with all these different decisions, and much of it was very localized. So this worked very well for them. However, it was not only the Israelites that were in this group. I mentioned it was a mixed multitude, and whenever you have thousands of people that are going through other nation-states, they're going to run into other people as well. There are definitely interactions with foreigners that were going on on a regular basis, and there were foreigners that traveled with them. And so when we see how they treated foreigners, that's another way that the Israelites did stand out. What they believed is that any foreigner that wanted to become an Israelite was welcome to. Basically, all they had to do is want to be an Israelite themselves. They had to believe in the God of Israel and follow their God. And that was about it. (laughs) So around that time period, mostly religion and nationality were one. So if you saw a Babylonian, the Babylonian, you would just assume and you would know he worshipped the Babylonian gods. If there is an Egyptian woman, you would just know that she has Egyptian gods that she worships. That's just the way it was at the time. So the god of an area was just intrinsically tied to the nation itself. So if you were an Israelite, then obviously you followed the God of the Israelites, and that's the way it worked. So anyone was welcome to join Israel and become an Israelite themselves so long as they followed the God of Israel. Now, there were plenty of foreigners that were not interested. They did not want to join the religion of the Israelites, but they still were involved. Maybe they had friends or family members, or maybe they had prosperous trade with the Israelites themselves, and so they wanted to travel with them, at least temporarily or maybe even permanently. Well, this was allowed. Now, they had to basically camp on the outskirts of the nation of Israel, if you want to say that. This is a kind of traveling nation that does not have any physical land yet. But they were allowed to go with them and interact with them. There was basically a free trade policy. There were no tariffs or regulations or anything like this. No taxes. Um, They were able to trade with one another. They were able to live beside one another. And basically, it was a very welcoming mentality. It was open borders, it was free trade, and it was friendly in general. So this is very different than many of the other nations that they are going around that were much more closed off and much more regulated, and we don't see this with the Israelites. So let's get into some of the more specific laws and beliefs that they govern themselves by. Slavery will be the first one. So slavery is a very controversial topic in general. Most people nowadays do not agree with slavery, and we see that slavery is an injustice, 
and it infringes on the rights of individuals. If we believe that all individuals have equal rights, then we obviously cannot treat any certain people differently than we treat others in relation to their rights. We can't take those rights away and own a person. However, in Israel, in ancient Israel, they did have slavery. Now, this is usually looked upon as being a very bad thing and kind of a black eye on the face of the Israelites. However, when we really dig into what they believed about slavery, you can see that slavery is not really the same to them as it is to us. Usually when we think of slavery in our day and age, we think of early America and the African slave trade, and that's what our minds go to. However, the slavery that is depicted for the Israelites is more of servitude than it is slavery to a degree. So let's look at that. Basically, the only way that you would become a slave would be that either you voluntarily became a slave or you were paying back for a crime that you have committed, or you are already a slave and you are purchased from one owner to another. And so that's kind of how you got into slavery. Now, to look at this specifically, I said voluntary slavery. Now, why in the world would anyone volunteer to be a slave? Well, there is a good reason for that, and that is because typically they... We're not doing so well personally, and if they were very poor, they couldn't support themselves, you had someone that did not own much property, they didn't have a family to help them out and take care of them, they didn't really have many options for bettering themselves and becoming a more respectable member of society. But what they could do if they were down and out and didn't have any good prospects available to them is they could sell themselves into slavery to a certain person and basically be their servant for a period of time. And in exchange, they would get room and board, they would get food, they would get any health care that was needed, and they would be released after a certain period of time, and they would be released with goods, with money. They actually earned money while they were a slave. So this is not as bad as we would normally think. The other reason why one might become a slave, I said, was to pay off a crime or restitution-based. So what this would involve would be if somebody committed a crime, if they injured someone or stole something or whatever the case may be, they hurt a certain party, but they were not able to make restitution for that crime. So let's say that they killed someone's goat and you have this one man, his name is Bob. Bob the Israelite killed another man's goat. Well, Bob did kill the goat, and he was found guilty by the local elder that heard the case, and he didn't deny it. He agreed with it. However, he had no way to pay back the goat's owner for that goat that he killed. So what was he going to do? Well, he had to make restitution for this crime. That 
was the system that they lived under. It was a very restitution-based system. They did not just throw someone in jail. They didn't have jails. What they did was they made the criminal pay back for what the damages were that they caused. And so if Bob could not pay back the owner for the value of this goat that he killed, probably plus a certain amount on top of that, then one of his only options was to become a slave and work off this debt that he owed. And he could do this. He would become a slave to the owner of the goat, and he would earn his money and earn his wages and earn his debt down until he paid that off, and then he would be free. And that's how it worked. So there was a way for a criminal to basically make good from damages that they had caused, and slavery was a way that they did that. Now, again, this is not the way we usually think of slavery. In ancient Israel, kidnapping was a crime that was punishable by death. So they definitely did not have anything that looked like the African slave trade where they kidnapped certain peoples and foreigners and, you know, had them as slaves. That's that's not the way it worked. Typically, it was either voluntary servitude or it was restitution that they couldn't make up any other way. Now, there was another rule that applied to all slaves, and that was that you could only own a slave for seven years. At the end of their seven-year stretch, they had to be released. And so there was no permanent slavery that was forced upon anyone. It didn't matter why they were a slave. It didn't matter if they volunteered. It didn't matter if they were a criminal. It didn't matter if they were purchased. No matter the reason, they were to be set free after seven years, period. Not only were they to be set free, they were to be set free with enough provisions and goods and wealth to be able to go out on their own and support themselves. This was mandated. And so you saw that they were actually treated fairly well. Now, other reasons for release were things like injury. So if a slave had their eye damaged by their master, they were to be set free. If they lost a finger, then they were to be set free. Basically, any injury that they sustained at the hands of their master that was unjust, that called for release of that slave, period. Now, if a slave was killed by their master, then that master did commit murder according to their law, and the master was subject to the death penalty. So you see that they were very strict on protecting the rights of the people, even the slaves. The slaves were not treated as if they were kind of second-class citizens that didn't really have any rights. No, they were Israelites, and they did have rights, and these rights were supported by the law. Now, there is a law that says that if a slave is killed by their master, then that master should be put to death. However, if the slave survives a vicious beating but does not die, then the slave owner is not to be punished. And it says this is because the slave is his property. Now, some people look at this and say, well, hey, he could beat him within an inch of his life, and that was okay. You know, that's not right. Well, no, looking at it that narrowly, no, that's not right. But that's not actually what happened because... 
Number one, the aspect of the slave being the owner's property means that if the master does injure his slave to a great degree, then he is really hurting himself because the slave is the one that works for the master and produces for the master. And if the slave is out of commission, then that slave owner is not getting anything out of the slave. Not only is he not getting anything out of him, he's actually having to spend resources to rehabilitate the slave and make sure that he recovers so that he can then be able to produce. Now, this is one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that the slave has been injured and therefore, according to the law, should be released. And so the owner would be responsible for the healing and and recovery of the slave, and then the slave would have to be set free with plenty of provisions. And so you, this does hold up the rights of the slave in just about every way. There was also a rule that slaves that ran away from their master and sought refuge in another person's home were not allowed to be returned to that master. If a slave sought refuge in your home, you had to let him in, you had to take care of him, and you were not allowed to send him back. So this idea of love your neighbor that goes all through the Old Testament, really, but specifically Mosaic Law, which is what they lived under, does reference loving your neighbor multiple times, and that's a concept that the Israelites lived under. Now, their neighbor applied to the slaves as well. So even if there wasn't a direct law that covered a specific scenario, the concept of loving your neighbor did apply no matter what. And that was kind of a broad blanket that would cover just about everything related to mistreatment of anyone, especially slaves and workers. Now, I did mention that slaves earned wages, the slaves did have the opportunity to purchase their freedom. So if they worked enough and earned enough wages and it had only been maybe four years that they had been a slave, well, if they didn't want to wait another three years to be released, but they had earned enough wages to buy themselves out, then they could do that. And that was legal. Another perk that they had was that they were to take the Sabbath day off. Everyone in the community was to work and go about their normal business for six days, but on the seventh day, everyone was to rest, and this included the slaves. They had a one-day weekend, in a sense, just like everyone else in the whole community did. Now, overall, I have looked up different law codes and different ways that other civilizations and other people groups at the time handled slavery, I have not been able to find any that gave anywhere near the same amount of rights to slaves as the Israelites did. I can't even find any group of people or any law code that would define slavery in the same terms that the Israelites defined it in their law code. So this is very different from all the cultures around them and very different even from much more modern examples. Moving on, the next subject I wanted to look at was that of women's rights. This is another aspect that was very negative in most of the cultures around the Israelites. Most 
civilizations did not give women many rights. In general, they were more second-class citizens, and they did not have anywhere near the rights of the men. Oftentimes, they were treated as property more than they were treated as individual human beings. And so, at first glance, this might be the way it looks for the Israelites as well. However, similarly to slavery, as we look in a little deeper, we see that women actually did have much more rights than you would have thought. Women, by the law code that the Israelites followed, had equal rights to their person and their property as anyone else did. So they were not allowed to be mistreated. They could not be damaged or physically injured, and they would have rights to prosecution for anyone that did infringe upon them and their individual person. Now, one specific area that we can look at is that of rape, and that would be the probably grossest violation of a woman's individual personhood. Now, what happened when a woman was assaulted in this way was that the criminal would be put to death, pretty much. Under most circumstances, if someone assaulted a woman, then that person would be put to death, period. There were some different interesting aspects here, though, that would come into play under certain scenarios. So if this if this event and this assault happened within a town and the woman did not fight this advance by the man and the woman did not scream out and did not try to stop it, then the man was not treated as the only guilty party. The woman was also treated as being guilty as well for not defending herself and just letting it happen. And that's how they viewed that scenario. However, if the assault took place in the country or somewhere that was on the outskirts of town, then no matter what, the woman was not faulted at all because there would have been no one around to help and to come to her aid no matter how much she tried to fight. And so in that scenario, it was always the man that was put to death, period, no questions asked. Now, there is one interesting aspect, and that would be that of a woman who was a virgin and was seduced, we'll say, to begin with. So if a virgin was seduced and a man was able to convince her to lie with him, then what would happen there is that the couple would be forced to get married. Um, No one was to be put to death or expelled from the community. They were to be married. This would solidify their union and it would make sure that the woman had a livelihood. So in those days, if a woman was not a virgin, she basically had zero chance of being able to have a successful life because no other man would want to marry her in this condition. And so she would not have anyone to take care of her and she would struggle for her whole life after that. So because of this, and because of this dynamic in the culture, the man and the woman that participated in this act together were forced to go ahead and just get married. Now, that kept the woman from being 
destitute and not having a livelihood, and it forced the man to commit to his actions and basically take responsibility for seducing this woman. Now, the more controversial scenario would be that if a man raped a virgin who was not committed to anyone else in any way. So in the other cases of rape, if a woman was married or engaged or anything of this nature, then that's when the man is put to death, period. Now, if there was a virgin who was raped and was not committed to anyone else, then what was actually demanded was that the man not be put to death, but rather be forced to marry the woman that he attacked. So at first glance, again, this looks very barbaric and this looks horrible. However, when you take it within the context of the culture and what was going on, you can see that if the man was put to death because of this action, then the woman would be the one that would be punished even worse because she would have no chances to better herself. She would have no way to take care of herself. No one would want to marry her, and she would basically be begging in the street. That would be her only option. She wouldn't be able to have any children, so there would be no one to take care of her in her old age. She would just be out of luck, and she would probably starve to death, or she would have to take on the patronage or the charity of other people, and that would be her only way to get by. So in order to prevent this, the attacker was forced to marry her. He was forced to pay her family a certain amount, and he was forced to take care of her. And so that was the responsibility that he was forced to take upon himself for his actions. And that was the restitution that he was to pay for his actions. So instead of basically just killing him and then committing the woman to not much of a life for the rest of her life, instead, the man was forced to take care of the woman for the rest of her life. And she was basically had no worries. She was all taken care of. And this was the way that that scenario was handled. Now, no, this is not the way we would handle it nowadays. And again, at first glance, this looks horrible. But when you really look at it in a cultural context, this makes a lot of sense because it really protects the woman from being put in this position of being cast out on the street and unwanted. And so that's how they handled it. Now, another interesting scenario would be if a master marries his slave. So say there is a slave woman and the master really likes her and he marries her. Well, at that point in time, the master then has to give equal rights to that slave woman as he would to any other wife. So there was polygamy that was practiced at this time in this community and people did have multiple wives at times. And if they did, they were not allowed to treat the former slave any differently than they treated a wife that was always free. The wife automatically had equal rights as soon as they got married. This also applied if a master had his son marry one of his slave girls. The slave girl would then have to be treated as a daughter and she would have to have the equal rights as any daughter would. So again, we see that the woman's rights are upheld and strengthened depending on the situations that were going on. Now, once a woman was married, she did have rights of divorce. 
So if there was mistreatment or if the man accused her of something falsely, then the woman would have the right to leave. Not only that, she would have to be provided for enough for restitution at the cost of her former husband, and so she would be able then to carry on her life, and she would get out of this abusive relationship, and she was allowed to do this. Now, when people got married in this community at this time with the Israelites, there are two practices that don't really seem to jive with our modern sensibilities. That would be that of a bride price and arranged marriages. So the bride price was an amount of money that a suitor would pay to the potential bride's father in exchange for being able to marry his daughter. Now, when we look at this again at first glance, it seems like he's buying a wife and, you know, that would be buying and selling women. And of course, this does not seem to uphold women's rights. However, the way this actually played out in the culture was that the daughter, when she was under her father's leadership and she lived with her father, she would be participating in whatever it is she needed to participate in. She would be helping run the house. She might be milking the goat or mending the clothes or whatever task or whatever craft she was good at, that's what she would be doing. So she would be working for her family and helping to support her family. Now, if she was taken away from that family, then obviously there is a large amount of support and work and labor that the father would have to make up for in some other way because his daughter was now gone and not doing this. So in order to cover that cost and that opportunity cost, the suitor would have to pay a certain amount. He would pay this bride price, and that would, in a sense, make up for the loss that the father was receiving. Now, the aspect of arranged marriages is kind of interesting because nowadays we see marriage and love as something that is a feeling. You get those butterflies in your stomach, and you just know you've met your soulmate, and that's kind of how it's portrayed in modern culture and many movies that we see. And so when we look at arranged marriages, this seems just completely opposite of that. And there's no way that would work. That's barbaric. Why would anyone do that? Well, the reason this did work in the Israelite community was that the aspect of commitment was a very big deal. So no matter how you got married or why you got married, when you got married, you were committed to that marriage, period. Now, again, there were times that there was mistreatment or bad things that went down, and there, like I said, there was a right to divorce or to leave and things of this nature. But in general, there was a very strong commitment to marriage. And if you were to break that commitment, you were basically shunned by the whole community, even if there was a good reason one party or the other, or both, depending on the situation, would be shunned and would be looked down upon and probably persecuted, not necessarily prosecuted for any crime or anything, but at least persecuted by those around them. So when you have a very strong commitment to a marriage and to a relationship, then you don't necessarily need to start off with these butterfly feelings in your stomach because you 
get into this relationship, you are committed on both sides to this relationship, and that's when you get to know each other, you start having feelings for one another, uh, you start being more committed emotionally to one another, you build that relationship, and you don't have this insecurity that, well, what if this doesn't work out? What if the person leaves? What if they don't like me? They probably did feel this to some degree, but in the back of their minds, they knew that they were committed and that both parties were committed, and so this would last. And that gives a sense of security to the relationship that they can then build on and start to love each other. And the love came after the marriage, um, at least from our perspective, the way we look at it from today's point of view, is that they would get married, they would be committed, and then they would start to fall in love and build their relationship and that sort of thing. So even if that's not how we would want to do things nowadays in most countries of the world today, that's how they did it then. And it actually did work pretty well. And that's the reason behind it. It was mainly that commitment that really solidified a marriage, even though the two participants didn't necessarily choose everything themselves. So that's how that worked out. Now, Moving on to the next topic, I want to go over punishment. This is another way that the Israelites' law code really stood out from other civilizations of the time and even civilizations of today's day and age. So at the time, you had the Babylonians and you then had the Assyrians and the Hittites and all the other groups that were around this Mesopotamia area and region they had very strict and very harsh punishments. So if you got caught stealing, you might get your head chopped off. Or if maybe you disrespected somebody, that might be cause for torture and then death. Things of this nature that were very harsh and very strict. Now, in Israel, there was this mentality, and it wasn't just a mentality out of nothing. It was in their law code of equal punishment for an equal crime. So it's the concept of an eye for an eye. Now, this didn't always necessarily mean that if you got in a fight and injured someone's eye, then they were to take a knife and injure your eye. That's not necessarily how that always played out. That's not necessarily what it meant specifically. The concept is that the punishment should fit the crime. So If there was a fight and one man was injured, then the person that injured them was not to be tortured. They were not to be killed. They weren't to be totally kicked out of the community. No, the punishment needed to fit the crime. So even if it was a financial payment that the person would have to pay, then that would just have to correspond to the crime that they committed. They weren't going to be punished to this extreme degree that other cultures did in their law codes. They were going to be punished equally. So there is an example in the law code for how you deal with a situation where there has been a fight. So let's say there was a fight and one man did get injured. Well, according to Mosaic Law, the person that 
caused the injury would have to pay for the recovery of the injured party and would have to participate in this recovery. Let's say it was Bob the Israelite that got injured, and he was injured by this other man that he got in a brawl with over, you know, probably over some girl. That's usually the way it ends up. But Bob got injured, and he had his leg hurt in this fight, and he couldn't really walk around very well. Well, how that played out was that Bob's attacker would have to take care of Bob. He might even take him into his own house. He would have to make sure that he was fed and clothed and sheltered, that the responsibilities that Bob was responsible for would be taken care of by this other man. And all of this was at the cost of the other man. And so we see again that it's a restitution-based law code where it's not necessarily punishing the criminal or the person that was responsible it is forcing that person to be fully responsible for the restitution of whatever damages they caused and that's how it played out in those types of scenarios now there were no jails like i had mentioned the punishments were pretty much either expulsion from the community or restitution based was the most common or death penalty, and that was it. So pretty much you either did something that was bad enough to have the death penalty put on you, or you did something bad enough to just kick you out of the community, or for most circumstances under kind of more misdemeanor charges as we would think of, or even just step up steps up from that, it was restitution-based, where you would be forced to make up for whatever it is that you have done. Now, when it comes to the restitution-based damages, it's not necessarily that you only pay back what you are responsible for damaging. There were plenty of times when you had to pay back even more. So, for example, if a thief came in and stole something, that thief was not only responsible for either giving back the item they stole or give back the equal value of what they stole, but they also had to double that value. So if a thief stole a goat, then not only would he have to give this goat back, he would have to give back two goats. And that was part of his restitution as well as a punishment. Going back to the example of Bob being injured in a fight, not only was his attacker responsible for Bob's recovery and making sure he got better and paying for all this, his attacker was also responsible for paying Bob for the lost time that Bob wasn't able to work and for any other responsibilities or damages that existed because of this injury. So restitution is not just simply paying back for what you broke. It is also paying back above and beyond for any damages of any kind, even if it is beyond just the physical damages of what was done. It's all the other repercussions that reverberated within someone's life that was affected by a certain crime. The death penalty is one that is fairly interesting, that seems very extreme to us nowadays, that you would have someone that would be stoned to death because this is the common way that the death penalty was enacted. However, the way they did this was very interesting. So when a criminal was convicted of a crime and sentenced to death because of that crime, that person would be stoned. 
but he would be stoned by the community as a whole. So it wasn't just an executioner that, you know, threw big rocks at him and killed him. No, it was the person would be in the middle of a circle of the whole community and the entire community would each throw a stone at this person until they were dead. So the whole community would be responsible for the death of this individual. And this would kind of put a check on how often you would give the death penalty to somebody. Because if you had to physically participate in putting this person to death, you'd probably be much less likely to sentence someone to death. And so it kind of did put a check on how often this was be instituted. But not only was this aspect a check, the other aspect is that if someone was put to death and they were actually innocent, and it was later found out that they were not guilty, then the community as a whole would have that guilt, that blood guilt would be on them permanently because they participated in killing someone that was innocent. Now, within their religious beliefs, this was a very bad thing. You did not want to have blood guilt on your head because this would really damage your relationship with God and your standing with God, and so they definitely did not want this to be the case. Now, also, if there were witnesses that condemned the party that was sentenced to death, and it was later found out that those witnesses had lied, and that's how you found out that the man was really not guilty, but you know you already killed him, so it's a little too late. Well, those witnesses that provided a false testimony against the person would then be responsible directly for that person's death, and they would be sentenced to death. So again, you get another check on false testimony within the court. If your false testimony leads to someone's death and that was unjustified, then you are to be put to death. So you would probably think twice before you would lie on the stand if this was the penalty that you might be receiving. Now, even though there was a death penalty for many different charges, there was not a federal government that carried this out. Again, it was the community that carried it out physically in these more broad-based type scenarios. But if, say, a woman was murdered in the street, well, the murderer, of course, would be receiving the death penalty, period. That's just the way it was. However, if that murderer ran away from the city, then obviously he's not going to be in court with the local elders and tried in a normal manner. However, he was still guilty, and the death penalty still did apply. What happened in that situation is that the responsibility for carrying out that penalty and that punishment on the murderer was passed along to basically the nearest kin. You had a person that was entitled the Blood Avenger. So when an innocent person's blood has been spilled and was murdered, then the basically closest kin would be responsible for bringing that murderer to justice. And so they would have to go out, find the person, and carry out the punishment. They would have to kill the murderer because that is the penalty. And so that's how it would play out. Now, 
of course, you may have a scenario where someone was accused of murder, but they were really not guilty. They had been walking down the alley, and some woman got stabbed. They looked up. They kind of saw it and saw someone running away, and that's it. But the first person to turn the corner after that saw this man and a woman dying in the street and automatically blamed him for the death. Well, of course, this person would be very scared because there's a witness that sees him and a dead girl and obviously tied the two together, and therefore, this person's likely to get the death penalty. Now, what is he going to do? Well, there actually was a provision for this. So... As soon as the Israelites had a certain territory, there were cities of refuge that were set up, and they were spread all throughout the nation of Israel and all throughout the land. And what these were were places that an accused person could go to and seek refuge and safety from this blood avenger. So what they would do is if they were innocent, they would go to a city of refuge, they would tell the people, the leaders of that city, that that they were accused of a crime that they're not guilty of, and they are seeking refuge. So what would happen would be that when the blood avenger came to the city of refuge to accuse this man of murder, there would be a court case that would be heard there by whoever the local magistrates were, and that court case would decide whether the person really was innocent or guilty. So basically, if someone was innocent, they did have a right to a fair trial from an unbiased source at this city of refuge. And so again, you have another check on an abuse of power or the mob mentality or falsely accusing somebody, all these types of things that could exist in any judicial system, you had a check that was put on it by enacting this specific way of dealing with it, of having cities of refuge. Now, speaking of violence, that brings up the subject of war. So we have all heard stories, I'm sure, of these ancient civilizations that go in and kill everybody, man, woman, child, just slaughter them all. Maybe you take a bunch of them for slaves and you take the women for yourselves and you know, whatever the case may be, it was a very barbaric time and it really was. It was very brutal and war was very brutal at that point in time. However, there were some checks on war that the Israelites followed that we would think of as being actually fairly civilized. So when it came to war, the Israelites were only allowed to go to war to take over the Holy Land is what they called it. It was a specific section of land that they believed they were entitled to and that they were to take control of. This was the only time that the Israelites were allowed to go to war. They were not allowed to go to war in order to get slaves. They were not allowed to go to war in order to get loot and get treasure. They were only allowed to go to war in the case of defense or to take over their land, their nation of Israel that they believed should belong to them. Now, we may disagree as to whether or not that land truly should have belonged to them, but that's beside the point. We are not getting into that here. The point was that there was a structure in place and a 
very severe limit on the scale of their empire and the scale of how much war they were allowed to participate in. Now, with that being the case, the different tribes of Israel were given different sections of land. However, again, there wasn't this central government and central army that went in and just cleared out all the land and then divvied it out to its people. That's not how it worked. The individual tribes were responsible for going and taking over the land that was given to them. So you see, like I had mentioned at the beginning of the episode, that these different tribes of Israel had kind of militias within themselves, and they would raise their own men and fight for themselves. Well, in order to attain the land that they wanted and that they were to live in, they had to work for it. They had to fight for it, and they had to do it themselves. So this was a very different approach to war and to conquest than really any other civilization of the time. Any other civilization did have a central army. It was usually conscription-based, and their soldiers were forced to fight. And when a group of people took over a town or took over a city, it wasn't for their own good and for their own possession in general. In general, it was for their king. And it belonged to the king, and the king did with it whatever he wanted to. This was not the case with the Israelites. The tribes were to take control of their portion of land, and then it was theirs. They had to work for it, but then they owned it, and it was their land. Another interesting aspect that is very different from anything in the past or in the present is that when the soldiers were gathered and they were going to war, what was to happen was that the leader of whatever group of men were there to fight that leader was supposed to talk to the soldiers and basically give them a little bit of a pep talk. But in addition, there were some specific questions he was to ask his soldiers. And I'm sure it wasn't just these questions. I'm sure it was the concept in general and anything related. But the questions give us a good feel for what their goal was. Now, first he would ask, is there anyone here that has recently built a new house but you haven't gotten to live in it for very long at all, and you haven't been able to enjoy it. And so if anybody could say, oh, yep, me, I, I built a house you know, two weeks ago, and well, obviously haven't been able to live in it much, then the commander would say, okay, go home. You need to enjoy this house. The next question would be, is there anyone here that has planted a vineyard, but has not eaten of the fruit of that vineyard and has not reaped the rewards and the benefits of your labor yet. So if anybody had planted a crop in a new vineyard and had not been able to harvest from it yet, they were to go home because this was their right and this was something that they were supposed to do. The third question was, is there anyone here that has recently been engaged but hasn't had a chance to enjoy their marriage yet? And obviously, if there was, that person was to go home. If they have not, basically, if they haven't had any sons or any daughters, any children yet, then they were to go home. They were to have children so that they would have an heir and someone to take care of their property and pass their inheritance to, and then they could fight in whatever battle came after that. The final question that was asked was basically, is anyone here afraid? Is anyone scared? And if anyone was, then you need to go home because you are not going to be much use to us here, and you are going to be a liability. So 
these were all the questions that were asked, but it's the general concept that if you have something at home that you need to take care of and you have something that you have worked for and not been able to get any benefit out of yet, if you were young and had a lot going for you and a lot to be responsible for and look forward to, then you were to at least enjoy this to a small degree and get the benefits of it at least that first season or so before you went in and went into battle and potentially died. And so this is how the men were treated. This is very different from any other culture. I haven't been able to find any other culture that called out anything like this. The closest examples I have are of armies that did send back people that were scared or afraid, and that's as close as I can find. So again, this is another way that differentiates the way that the Israelites handled warfare. Now, the final way that I'll mention that is very interesting is that when the Israelites came to a town that they were going to take over and they were going to attack, they had a mandate that before they attacked this town, they always had to offer peace first. That was always the first thing they had to do. They had to go to the town and offer terms of peace, and if that town accepted, then they were not allowed to besiege the city and take it over by force. They had to do it peacefully. Now, in general, the most places did not agree to peace terms, and so it ended up not really working out this way very often. But again, this is a good check on brutality and on the use of force that they had to offer terms of peace before they were allowed to actually try to conquer forcefully a certain town or area. Now, that's all we're going to talk about when it comes to war, but you can see that they're very different than many other civilizations, especially of their time. The final aspect that we will look at will be that of personal responsibility. So everybody was expected to have a certain level of personal responsibility for their own actions, for their own property, and for their neighbors, for all the other members of the community and any foreigners living among them. Now, foreigners, when they were among the Israelites, were to be given equal rights and equal status to the Israelites. So no matter what was going on, anybody in the community was to be treated equally. Now, when it comes to responsibility, some good examples that make this pretty clear. Number one is that if you had a cistern or a well that you had on your property, it was your responsibility to keep that well or cistern covered. If it was not covered and someone came through and fell in and got injured, then you were responsible and you had to pay for that person to be rehabilitated. You had to take care of them. You had to pay restitution, just like Bob's attacker did when he got injured in a fight. Very similar system here. It is also the case if someone's animal injures somebody, they are to make payment and restitution and make sure that person is rehabilitated and made better. And that is the owner's responsibility. So if there's an ox that gored somebody and injured them, then the ox's owner would be responsible for that. He is responsible for everything on his property and all of his property as a whole, including his animals. Now, if 
someone has an ox that has been known to be violent and has been known to attack people and gore people before, and that owner does not put enough precautions in place to keep it from happening again, and the ox does injure another party. And this happens again, even though the owner knows that this is a likely potential and did not stop it, then the owner is responsible and would be put to death. So they would be ultimately responsible and pay an ultimate punishment for that. So not only are you to prevent things from happening on your property or with your property to other people, if you do not properly do that, you are responsible to the point of the death penalty in some situations for that and for what happens. Another example would be that when you build a house, you are to build a small wall around the roof. And this is with the intentions of making sure that someone doesn't accidentally fall off your roof. And so if someone does fall off your roof and you didn't put a small wall around it as a safety precaution, then you're responsible for whatever injury took place after that. So again, you are responsible for the safety of your property and anything on your property. And if you don't take that responsibility seriously, you will be held liable for anything that happens as a result. Now, you're not only responsible for your property. If you come across someone else's property that is in need of your assistance, you are to offer it. So for example, if there is an ox that has stepped in a hole and hurt its leg and it can't really get up, it can't really do anything, you are not allowed to just see it, say, oh, well, that sucks for you and move on and go about your business. No, you have to help that animal. You have to go get help if you need to. You have to do whatever you can to help that animal, even though it's not yours. So if you know whose it is, then you can help the animal out, get it back to its owner. Its owner would pay you for your services And that's that. If you do not know whose animal it is, say there's a goat out in a field that has an injured leg, well, you carry that goat back to your own house, you rehabilitate it, you make it better, and whenever you find out who the owner is, then you do give it back and they pay you for your services. If you never find who it is, then I guess it's your goat. But you are not allowed to just leave an injured animal out and about if you know that it you know belongs to somebody if it's livestock of some kind and this applies to any property you are to take responsibility of making sure that your property is in good condition as well as other people's if other people are in need you are to take care of them so this applies to the poor as well you are to give generously to the poor period you are also not allowed to charge interest to anyone that is poor and in need. If there is someone in need and they need finances, they need money, you are to give them a loan and you are not to charge any interest for it. And this is mandated. This is to help out the poor and raise them up to a place where they can take care of themselves. There is also an interesting thing that they did implement, and it's called gleaning on the fields. And what this entailed was that when there was a field and it got harvested, the owner was to leave a portion of the grain or whatever it was unharvested. They were to leave the edges untouched and any extras that kind of fall to the ground or fall to the wayside were to be left. You weren't to go back and pick up every last bit because 
anyone who was poor and was in need had the right to come on your land after you harvested and basically take what they need of the extras. They weren't allowed to take a whole bunch in a bunch of baskets and go out and sell them. That was illegal. However, they were allowed to take what they needed for sustenance for themselves and their family if they had one. And this was a way of providing welfare for those that were in need, that were poor. So there were social safety nets, in a sense, that were in place structurally within the community. Now, even though you were to take care of the poor and help them out financially, help them out with food and resources, you had always had the option of going into voluntary servitude if that's the way you wanted to do it as a poor person. However, no one was allowed to show favor to somebody just because they were poor, nor were they allowed to show favor to somebody just because they were rich. Everyone was to be treated equally when it comes to their rights and the law. So just because someone is poor, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to put extra focus on them and treat them better than someone who, you know, is well off. And you're not allowed to show favoritism even though they're poor or just because they're poor. And you're not allowed to do the same for someone that is rich or wealthy. Just because they have some power, some pull, some wealth, you're not allowed to treat them any differently than anyone else. So this goes both ways, and everyone is to be treated equally, and this is in their law code. Now, we spoke of money. Another way that they handled money and giving can be seen as they were to build a sanctuary and they were going to build the Ark of the Covenant. So these are things that were tied to their religious beliefs. They were going to build a sanctuary that they were going to use to worship their God and an Ark of the Covenant that would hold some of their sacred artifacts in. Now, these were very expensive endeavors. This was a huge building project that was going to be coming up. However, all of the finances that were to be used were to be donation-based. So they were to take up donations from all the tribes and all the people, and the donations were to be used to build this sanctuary and to build the Ark of the Covenant. This is very different, again, from all the other civilizations around them. When a king had a project that they wanted to get done, think of the pharaohs and building the pyramids. These were going to be done, period, and people were forced to do it. That doesn't always mean that it was slave labor involved or anything like that, although often it was. This was just that it was mandatory that people would give, usually through taxes, and the people would support whatever project the king deemed to be worthwhile. But again, the Israelites did not have a king. They did not have a central government. They did not have taxes collected. So this was not the route that they went. They did it strictly voluntarily through donations, and that's how they did these building projects. So that wraps up all the different aspects that I was going to cover about the nation of Israel and the Israelites. I think that you can see that they're very different than all the other civilizations around them, and they're very different than any other country that we think of or people group that we think of today. The aspects of how they governed themselves 
with this decentralized model that was very localized and very based on individual rights and the fact that it was heavily focused on voluntary trade, on voluntary donations, on voluntary welfare, things of this nature. It was voluntarily based. Again, that goes to people's rights. Now, it's a little controversial to go here, but anytime you have taxes from a central government or from a king or from any source, that is money that is demanded of the people by the government. And that is not voluntarily given. If a citizen says, well, you know, King, I'm sorry, but I don't really agree with that pyramid that you want to build over there. I think my money would be better spent in improving the marketplace area and making it a little easier to access, improving the road, that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to give my taxes for this pyramid. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it to you next time whenever we fix the roads. Well, no, that wasn't an option. That person would probably be beaten or thrown in jail or whatever the case may be. The point is that governments collect taxes by force. There is no voluntary aspect to that. It is always force. Now, plenty of arguments can be made and plenty are made on a regular basis that that this is necessary. And, you know, basically it's a necessary evil. There's no other way around it. That's just the way we have to do things. And you can make that argument. But what you cannot make the argument for is that taxation is voluntary because it's not. Even though you may have some citizens that voluntarily give their money, most would probably not give their money if they were given a true option. And it is not a true option to say, give me your money or I beat you or kill you or throw you in jail. That's, you know, threat of force. That is forcing someone to give money. So with the Israelites, we see the exact opposite of this, that there was no force. There was no coercion. Even the court system and the judicial system was done by by locals, by local elders and people that were respected within the community. They had a way to go beyond that judgment if they wanted to. There were these cities of refuge that people could go to if they said they're innocent. There was community involvement with the death penalty and everybody was involved and everybody was responsible, whether it went the right way or the wrong way. We see that there are just very different attitudes to everything. Slavery is more servitude. It's more someone is voluntarily usually becoming a servant to someone else and it is temporary and they are treated very well and they're set free if they are mistreated. This is just very different. Women's rights is something that did not really exist in most civilizations at the time. And when they did, it was nowhere near the amount of rights that women had in the Israelites' society. So even though the way they did things was very different culturally to what we think of as modern women's rights, in their culture and the way that their society ran, it was actually very generous and very equality-based when it came to how genders were treated. Now, they did have different roles that they played and different responsibilities. And, you know, again, they're very, it was a very different culture than what we have now. But 
the fact that they did have all these aspects of women's rights written into their law code in like 2000 BC uh, really stands out, especially among the other examples. Now, moving on, the last thing I'm going to mention is that, as we all know, Israel finally did get kings. They ended up becoming a monarchy. So before this, it could be said that they were a theocracy because God handed them the law, so they were following a religious belief. And to an extent, that's true. You had the prophets and Moses that would kind of dictate what God would say to them, and that was who guided the nation. So in a sense, it was a theocracy. In a sense, it was also a constitutional government because the Mosaic law, this law that they had, the code that they followed, was a constitution of a sense. It is what governed them, and any leader, any elder, any anybody was subject to the code of law, was subject to this constitution. So they kind of had a constitutional theocracy in a sense, but I would argue that it was more of a libertarian society that was focused on the liberty of the individual and it was focused on a more decentralized model. But when they shifted from this, they went straight to a monarchy. So what happened was that the people looked around at all these other nations around them and saw that they were very wealthy, and they had these kings that were very popular and doing great things and great warriors and all this stuff. And the people said, hey, you know, we need a king. That would be great. We want someone like that. And so they went to the prophet at the time, who was kind of their their guiding leader at the time, and his name was Samuel. And the people said, Samuel, we really want a king. All these other nations have kings, and we want a king too. So, you know, talk to God and figure out who's going to be our king, because we want one, and we want one now. Well, Samuel said, no, that's, that's a horrible idea. You don't need a king. Just, you know, we're going to do things the way we've been doing them. That's the way we need to do them. You don't want a king. And so they came back and back and back. And finally, Samuel, you know, he gives in and says, okay, you can have your king. However, let me give you a bit of a warning of what is going to happen when you get your king. Here is a quote of what the Bible says that Samuel responded with. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So that's what Samar responds with. You can see that you know, he's not very positive about what's going to happen. The king is going to take your sons and send them to war. They're going to die for whatever causes that he wants. He's going to take your stuff for his own benefit and the benefit of the rest of the bureaucracy that's going to be set up. He's going to take your daughters for his servants, and he's going to take even your servants. And, 
He's going to start taxing you and build his own wealth up and all this stuff. And sure enough, that is what happens as you look through the history of the nation of Israel. But we see this interesting comparison here between the libertarian roots of a decentralized governance model and the very centralized monarchy that later develops that ends up abusing power time and time again. And we see this contrast between these two governance models, the decentralized governance and the centralized government. And it's very interesting. So that's the coverage I wanted to go over, and that's our case study here on ancient Israel. I wanted to highlight a people group of ancient times that govern themselves a little differently than what we usually hear about and what we usually see nowadays. And so I think Israel was a very good example of a people group that not only govern themselves differently for different sake, but handled themselves much better in a moral sense, in an ethical sense. They had rights that they gave to slaves and to women and to individuals that superseded the rights of any single leader or person in charge. And this is just something that we need to keep in mind, that the governments that we have today and the monarchies that we saw through the centuries in England and France and places like that, these aren't the only ways that people have governed themselves over you know, the centuries that have gone on in the past and in ancient history. There are many different examples of many different kinds of systems. And this is just one, but it's a good example, and it kind of gets us thinking a little outside the box and seeing what's possible and what other peoples have done in the past. So thank you for listening. I hope this was entertaining and you enjoyed it. It was a nice break from our study that we have just wrapped up on the origins of government money and education. But next time, next episode, we are going to get back to our trifecta and start with the next episode of government, followed by the next one of money and education and so on. So please come back and listen to that next episode. I guess I should give you all of the contact information here. If you have any questions or comments or arguments, please email them to ourfoundations at protonmail.com. If you want to check out any further resources or notes or an outline of how the podcast will continue, or if you want to just play the podcast directly through a website, then go to our website, and that would be at ourfoundations.podbean.com. We are also on Twitter at FoundationsPC, and we have a Patreon page set up at patreon.com slash ourfoundations, where you can give donations and get access to some bonus content and some extra incentives there. Another way to financially support us if you want to more indirectly with something you already do, shopping on Amazon, Go to our website, and that was ourfoundations.podbean.com, and there's a link on the left. You click on the drop-down menu at the top left, and there's a link that says Shop on Amazon. If you click on that, it'll take you to Amazon, and then you just do your normal shopping, whatever it is you wanted to buy on Amazon. If you do it through that link, 
then Amazon will give us a contribution for the podcast that will help support us. It will be small, but any little bit helps. And that would be very helpful if you guys would be willing to do that. I would greatly appreciate it. It's something you are already doing, I'm sure, buying something on Amazon. But if you just do it through the link, then that also helps support us financially. However, if you could support us in other ways, that would be great. The best way would be to rate the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on. If you're listening through our website, maybe go to iTunes if you have an iTunes account or one of the other sources and give us a rating on there and maybe leave us a review would be great. Also click subscribe because when we have ratings and reviews and subscriber numbers, that helps get the podcast out there to more people. It'll pop up on more search results and people that are looking for this type of content on economics and politics and history of these different systems and things of this nature, they'll be able to find it and it'll pop up for them. So that would be great. Well, thank you again for listening. Thank you again for all your support. And I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.